Scott, uh, thank you for sharing your story and how God's using you, your gifts and your abilities uh, to serve the body at large. And I personally want to thank you for that vivid, beautiful illustration of a football covered in Crisco. <laughs> that will probably be some, the first thing I think about every time I go to visit a new baby uh, in the hospital. Uh, hey, this is a, a fun Sunday for a, a, a couple of reasons. Um, I don't, if you haven't downloaded it yet, we've got this um, church directory app, uh, and it's got, you know, you go and you get into the app, and you can see all the different folks who, um, who have their pictures and their names and how to call them, and if you, you know, scroll down here, all of the sudden, when you can see it, uh, when you get to the Rogers family, uh, Danny and Cindy Rogers uh, have already uploaded uh, their new family picture. They've moved from a family of four to a family of seven, and they're back from Poland, all seven of them. And so we want to welcome you and introduce you to, to David and Abigail and Samuel. So uh, if you haven't said hello yet, uh, you get to meet them after the service. Um, and I just want to welcome you guys. I'm glad you're here. All right. Well, hey, we're going to be looking at verses uh, two through, I'm sorry, three through twelve in Romans twelve. So let me invite you to open uh, your Bibles to that passage. Let's stand in honor of God's word. And uh, this is verses three through twelve. For by the grace given to me. I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for how it shows us more of who you are. It shows us who we are. And we pray that through your word, through your spirit, applying your word, you would transform us more and more into the image of Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> All right, so here in some of Paul's immediate application to uh, those, those uh, central key verses at the beginning of chapter 12 in Romans, talking about being transformed, having your minds renewed, 
um, letting your, your life be an offering uh, as, we, as we sung. Um, uh, the immediate application are a few things here. How to think of yourself. How to think of yourself with sober judgment. How to conduct yourself. How to use the gifts that God has graced you with, given to you to serve the body, and how to give yourself, how to love genuinely, how to love sincerely, how to give your heart in relationship uh, to those around you. So let's start with how to think of yourself. In verse 3, uh, I, I love this, this verse, how it gives us a, a grid. Uh, we're not just kind of groping around trying to figure out, who am I? Um, how should I think about myself? If you, if you go on to Amazon uh, Books and you go into the little uh, search engine under Amazon Books and you type in self-esteem, um, self-esteem, you're going to get eight 84,821 book titles, um, almost 85,000 book titles on self-esteem. What do you think is going to happen if you then type in humility? All kinds of books on self-esteem, right? Thinking more highly of ourselves. Type in humility, you only get about 2,000 titles. There are 42 times more books on self-esteem and Amazon books than there are about humility. So for every book on humility, there's a stack of 42 books on self-esteem. So how do you think about yourself? Do you think more highly, too highly about yourself? Do you think too low of yourself? Or are you like baby bear, I'm just right, um, you know, and how you think about yourself? How do I know how to think? about myself. The passage here tells us, well, think about yourself according to the measure of faith that God has given, right? That's what it says in verse 3. What does that mean? Uh, And admittedly, there are at least two viable, valid interpretations. The first goes something like this. So there's a measure of faith that God has given to you, and however you're able to, you know, think about yourself according to the measure of faith that God's given to you, then that's how you should think of yourself. And all right, that, that gels with the Greek, you know, that's perfectly legitimate to translate that phrase that way, but it, it sort of, it's, it, it's just, it doesn't mean anything. Because of course you're going to think about yourself according to the measure of faith that God's given to you. I mean, that's the problem, right? We need to grow in faith and we need to see ourselves and think about ourselves more consistently with the faith that that, that is, objectively, not subjectively, like, well, you know, I'm waking up this morning, oh, how, do I, how do I want to think about myself? Maybe I'll think about myself really highly today. No, nah, I think today I'll think about myself too low. Instead, I like the interpretation that goes with that measure of faith being an objective standard. The, the word measure is where we get the word meter. Um, it's, uh, it's something, you know, that is a standard. And that standard of faith, that measure of faith is the gospel. It's the gospel that teaches us how to think about ourselves. And the gospel is, 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 you know, apart from what we need for an eternity, it's beautiful because it works today. It's not fire insurance, just fire insurance for eternity. It, it's life transforming for today so that we don't become, um, you know, smug, proud, 
uh, insensitive, intolerable people, nor do we become groveling, insecure, anxious, um, and uh, you know, fearful. Uh, because the gospel says two things to us fundamentally. It says, all right, here's, here's the reality. You're a sinner. And, and the gospel just takes a wrecking ball to this facade of self-image that I have that I'm right and you're wrong. You know, I mean, that's, fun, that's my fundamental approach to any conversation. And probably yours too. I'm right, you're wrong. You know, I'm good, I'm perfect, I've got my stuff together and you know, you're, you're the problem. Um, that's why we get defensive, that's why we get into fights, that's why we have a hard time forgiving people, et cetera. And the gospel says, no, you know what, you're flawed. You're a sinner. It, it goes deeper than that. It doesn't just say that you're a sinner. It says that, well, well, yeah, you sin, but the reason why you sin is because you're a sinner. Um, sometimes we got to thinking that, well, I'm a sinner because I sin. Well, that's true. You know, yeah, we do acts that are sinful, but fundamentally the reason why I sin is because I've got a fallen nature. My, my heart is corrupt. It's polluted. I've never done anything, nothing in my life that's good with a 100% pure motive. Now, a, a quick caveat, that doesn't mean that everything I do all the time is always bad to the 100th degree. We still maintain the dignity of being made in the image of God. And so there's you know, nothing that I've done that's been without God's resources. There's nothing that I've done without his grace so there's always just sort of this element of, of beauty that we can see, even in the, the, the hardest and you know, worst of cases. So what does that tell us? Uh, it means that I'm a sinner and I need, I, need my, I need a new nature. You need a new nature. And the gospel says, good news, you, you can get a new nature because Jesus took your place. Jesus died on the cross and he loved you. He loved you so much that he went to that cross. And that's the, the other side of the gospel Jesus loves you, and that affirms us, and that builds us up, and it lifts us up. Uh, and Jesus went to the cross, he forgave our sins, and he gives us that new nature so that I'm not con- I don't have to be controlled by the sinful nature. I don't have to choose sin. I can choose obedience, I can choose righteousness. And so the gospel, because of that, that measure, that standard that's true, it's just out there, and your life needs to be measured by that, and my life needs to be measured by that, and everybody's life needs to be measured by that. The gospel tells us, cheer up. You know, as Jack Miller once said, cheer up. You're, <laughs> you're a far worse sinner than you ever imagined. You know, the sinful nature, we, we don't want to admit how bad it is. But cheer up. You're also far more loved than you ever dared hope. A man laid down his life for you. That really happened. And he had you on his heart as he hung on that cross. It wasn't just in theory. It wasn't just sort of this grand religious thing out there. It's personal. And he loves you. And that's how we measure ourselves. Yes, I need the humility that comes from the gospel and I need the affirmation that comes from the gospel. And that's what leads us to worship the one who saved us and loved us and knew us in our sin and still came to us and pursued us because we also bore the image of God. So this question about how do you think about yourself also should be applied to how we think about others. You know, think of others with sober judgment. Well, we need to judge 
other people the way that we judge ourselves. Instead, we end up doing what the psychologists call uh, a fundamental attribution error, um, where Stephen Covey, the seven habits guy, he says that we judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their actions. You know, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Oh, I was running late. That's why I cut that person off. And then somebody cuts you off, and they're a jerk. You know, they don't have any excuse at all. Uh, how should we see others? How should we view others? The gospel tells us, it gives us a measure and a standard to view others. They're made in the image of God, and they're holy, and they're valuable. They have intrinsic worth. So all the people that we're tempted to look down upon because of the color of their skin, because of how much money they might have or how much money they don't have, because of how smart they might be or how mentally handicapped they might be, because of what they can do with their bodies because of what they can't do with their bodies. Whether or not they're in a womb or outside a womb. It's a human being. And today, on you know, what churches around the country are observing as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, I think it's important for us to, to think with sober judgment about ourselves and about others, about the unborn. Um, sober judgment. Do you see that phrase in verse 3? Well, how does, how does a drunk person think? A drunk person thinks, I'm a great driver. Give me the keys. And they get in their car, and generally one of two things is going to happen unless by, by God's you know, mercy, sheer mercy, they arrive home safely. And they haven't either done harm to themselves or harm to another. God forbid they would destroy themselves or destroy somebody else. That's what drunk thinking will lead to. And so God calls us to sober thinking about ourselves so that we don't destroy ourselves or destroy others, and about others so that we don't destroy them. And these people around us, they may be different. They may have different strengths, different weaknesses. We don't understand them necessarily. We don't see them, you know, the way we should. And the gospel's calling us to a, a new perspective, to look more carefully and to see people according to that measure of the image of God in them. If anything, you know, we need to be very, very careful. Because if you look at Jesus, if anything, he's attracted to those whose society looks down upon. And he's attracted to the people who didn't have enough money. And he was attracted to the lepers who nobody would touch. And he was attracted to the women that nobody valued. And he told the children that were disposable in that culture. Just like there are children that are disposable in our culture, let them come to me. And that's how we should think about them, that standard. So how do we think about ourselves? How do we think about others? How do we conduct ourselves in light of this gospel, in light of this transforming power. Um, well, verses 4 through 8 talk about our role, our function in the body. Do you see that in verse 5? That we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Um, and this gives us not just uh, gospel worth through what Jesus has done for us, but it gives us, you know, sort of 
functional worth. We all want to feel useful. We all want to feel valuable to the group. We don't want to feel ancillary. We want to feel like I've got something to contribute. And that's part of the image of God in us. And that's why when Paul's talking about the body here, he does it a number of times. It's such a great illustration. He's like, I'm going to run with this. And he shares the same analogy to the 1 Corinthians. You go to you know, 1 Corinthians 12. You go to Ephesians 4, and he does it again. Peter does it, 1 Peter 4, uh, about spiritual gifts. To the Corinthians, he says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You've been given uh, talents, abilities, spiritual gifts, uh, the kinds of things that are listed here, and others. That's not an exhaustive list. Um, I think it's a sampling And whenever God has gifted you with that unique expression of grace, he's calling you to employ that for the common good, for the good of the body. Uh, Again, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says that the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor, again, the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. Um, You know, since we're talking about the parts of the body, um, you know, one way to think about this is what would it, what would life be like? What would our culture be like? What would our community be like if every single physician out there was a podiatrist? That is good news if you've got a bunion. That's really good news if you've got one of those, you know, corns that it makes it painful to walk. Not so good if you've got indigestion. You're, you're stuck. Or what would it look like if every single medical school in our country only gave a degree in optometry? That is really good news if you've got glaucoma. Not so good if you've got shingles. You know, we need specialists. God bless them. Uh, but we need all of the specialists together so that corporately they represent something uh, much healthier for us, uh, for their field, for the profession, and the church is the same way. We need each other, and we need your gifts, you need my gifts, um, you need you know, so-and-so's gifts, and they need yours, uh, and this is functionally how we can view ourselves, how we can give ourselves, um, you know, not just, the gospel doesn't just lead us to worship, it leads us to service, um, and this is how we can, can express that. Um, this is a grace that's given to us, by the way. Look at verse 3. Paul says, by the grace given to me, um, you know, and then he, he's, he's teaching. You know, he's fulfilling this role of apostle and prophet and teacher. And then in verse 6, he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And he says, you're just like me. You've been given grace, gifts, just like I have, and I want you to use them for the good of the body. So that we're not just members of one another, um, like hands and feet and eyes and heads, but we're also stewards. We talked about stewardship last fall. Uh, you know, that's, that's a biblical principle, so we're going to keep talking about it because this is what's going on here. There's this grace that's been given to you, and you're called to be a steward of what God's provided. Everybody needs a place to function. Do you know what your gifts and skills are? Do you know what you bring to the table at Tabernacle? And if you're kind of fuzzy on that, I'm not really sure. Am I 
you know, a good teacher? Am I a good, um, you know, with mercy ministry? And then I think it's remarkable to see the diversity of the gifts that are there. That some are really out front, some are behind the scenes, some are very, really practical, even dirty. <laughs> you know, you're going to get dirty. Uh, and others are, you know, more in the classroom. Maybe you work with kids, maybe you work with adults. So it's just very broad, very diverse. But if you don't know, what am I good at? Ask somebody. Ask them what they think about your talents, your abilities, your gifts, and, uh, and get their perspective. Uh, hire a consultant, you know. Have them, ask, have them give you what they think about your, your gift mix. Um, everybody needs a place to fit. That's how God made us. You, you, um, you know, the, the Thomas the Tank Engine stories, you remember those? They were written by a pastor. And I think if I'm remembering correctly, like the end of every story, uh, always says, and, you know, and Thomas was a very useful engine. And that's true. We want to be useful. That's how God made us. Um, do you feel useful at Tabernacle? you know where you fit here? Do you know how you function? Uh, if you do, great. You know, yeah, I do this and this, and, you know, here's, here's where I belong. Um, if you're unsure, if you're kind of going, I don't know if I do... Uh, I want to I speak kind of candidly here. It's the clock's ticking. And that clock that's ticking is ticking off the weeks, the months, you know, may, maybe it'll get into a year or more, but it's, a, it's just a matter of time before you're going to become so uneasy with that sense of I don't belong, I don't know where I fit, that you're going to feel like an outsider here. You might love what's happening here on Sunday mornings. You, you're, you found Tabernacle, you think it's great, this is my new home, terrific. Well, let me tell you what I tell everybody in the Welcome to Tabernacle class. If you don't move into other ministry here beside just coming and experiencing worship, you're going to feel like an outsider eventually. So, you know, looking at the bulletin, goodness gracious, look at the different ways that you can get involved and that you can find your fit. Um, that's, that's where you go to figure out, well, what do I do? Um, and, and so, two thoughts. First is, if you've been here a while and you still don't know where you fit, it's, 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 it's likely, it's pro probable, it's possible that we haven't done a very good job of recruiting you, of inviting you, of pursuing you, and plugging you in. Uh, we're a body, uh, but we're not 100% healthy, and we've got holes, and we've got blind spots, and we've got places where we miss people, and if we've missed you, I am sorry, and I, I want to apologize for that. The other side of this, though, is the possibility that the reason why you don't know where you fit, you don't have a place that you can identify where you plug in, is that you, you haven't kind of shown up for those different events, those different activities, those ministries where people are saying, we're glad you're here, come and get to work. And if that's the case, um, you know, you can remedy that. You can show up, you can come, um, and it takes some courage, it'll take some faith, but you, you can move in that direction. And I really do want to encourage you to do that because uh, it's, like I said, going to be a matter of time before you're feeling like, I'm not sure I belong here. And that would be a shame. Um, so if, 
that's something you're wrestling with, please talk to me afterward. Don't, don't just keep that to yourself because I want to figure out, all right, A, what can we do to remedy maybe the mistake that we've made? Or B, you know, how can we just deal with what's on the table right now and move forward and get you plugged in, right? So those are some thoughts about, you know, how do I think about myself? Uh, how do I function within the body? And then lastly, let's talk about giving yourself. Because the church is a place where we come to worship. It's a place where we come to serve. And it's a place where we come to love. Paul moves into this language, this, this you know, staccato of, uh, of, of emotions, of thoughts, where he's saying to let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, and, you know, boom, boom, boom. The language is vivid, um, and it's helpful. Uh, let love be genuine. Literally, he's saying let love be unhypocritical. We get our word hypocrite from the word that he's using there. He says to abhor. What is evil? You know, that's the corollary to let love be genuine is to abhor what is evil. And we're in a culture and a society that says that that hate is bad. You shouldn't abhor anything. Well, guess what happens when you have love and you subtract hate? What does that equal? Love minus hate equals the Hallmark Channel. (laughs) It equals something very weak, uh, it equals something powerless, it equals something insipid, actually. It's nothing. It has no structure, no backbone, no, no courage, it has no passion, it has no conviction, and love, if it's anything, is jealous, it's passionate, and it defends uh, what is right, and it is opposed to what is wrong, and that's because God is love, and God is opposed to what hurts people. He is passionate to reverse the curse. That's why he brought Jesus. And we are looking forward to an eternal future where there will be no more sin and there will be no more evil because God is opposed to it and he's doing something about it. Do you abhor hate? What is evil? And do you cling like glue? That's the language that Paul is using Hold fast like glue to what is good. This is passionate stuff. You're giving your heart to these virtues, to the body of Christ, to honoring God in the context of the body. There's no way, there's really no way that you and I can endeavor to use our spiritual gifts and to serve the body if we're not a part of the body, if we're not in the community of the church. We're not invested. And it's impossible. There's no way that you can offer unhypocritical love and have brotherly affection for the body if you're not vested in the body, if you're not vested relationally, if you don't have relational worth in the body of Christ. If there aren't people that look at you and go, all right, I know you care for me. You're valuable to me. And if you don't have people that know you and care for you and think you're valuable to them. This is the, the role of, of friendship. This is the, the, the reason why Paul in verse 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. He uses two words there that one of them has to do more with kind of family love. The church is a family. And the other word has a lot to do with friendship love the way that friends love each other. Uh, it's, it's, the church is really good at talking about love and making it kind of into a meaningless concept. It's just sort of general and, um, you know, 
generic. Um, but love isn't generic. Love is active. It, it, it's got grit to it. Uh, and it's got traction. Um, and one of the reasons why we struggle here uh, is because we don't always know or want to pursue those relationships because, well, you know, we're afraid. Um, I, I can talk to, to the guys here for a second. There was a study of uh, 120,000 men uh, that was done, and the question was posed to them, do you have a best friend? 120,000 guys. And in that group, what amounted to one out of 20 of those men said, yeah, I can name a best friend. One out of 20. Do you have a best friend? Guys and ladies. Do you, do you, can you name somebody that, that um, you know, doesn't just know about you, doesn't just know your story, but has actually shared your story? Uh, is a good way to define a best friend. They've walked with you through the highs and the lows, and they're still with you. You're still with them. Listen, if, if you don't, if you can't name it, you know, you know what? You're, you're, you've got a lot of company. At least the guys do. Women, we can all say, you know, we know they're more relational, right? Um, so that figure is probably lower for them um, or higher. How do I put that? You know what I mean. Uh, so if you don't have a best friend, it's okay. Um, what about just friends? Do you have friends? Do you have people that, you know, know about you? Maybe they haven't walked through everything with you, but do they know about you? Do they know how to pray for you? Do they know what you struggle with? Do they know what, what's exciting in your life right now? Do they know what you're tempted by? Do they know how to guard you and protect you? Do they know what questions to ask you? Because, well, you know, you'd be too afraid to offer the information. We need these kinds of people in our life. Husbands and wives, you know, there's going to be seasons maybe where you're best friends, and there's going to be seasons where you're just friends, and maybe there's going to be seasons where you're enemies. But you got to get back together and pursue friendship with one another. And you got to look around you and say, all right, I need friends. And do I have any friends in the body of Christ? Am I pursuing friendships in the body of Christ? And, and if you're not, you got to ask why. Why is friendship hard for me? Why, what am I scared of? What am I struggling with? What's, what's not working? And then determine, I don't want to stay in this situation. Because what the gospel is calling me to is to, to love unhypocritically, to have brotherly affection. That's how I can be a genuine Christian. I don't want to be a, a, an ungenuine Christian. Um, I want to live this life out relationally the way the gospel is calling me to do so. And how can I take that first step? Well, Let's just go back to the beginning. How do you think about yourself? Don't think about yourself more highly than you ought. Maybe you don't have friends because you're arrogant and you're intolerable. <laughs> don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And maybe you don't have any friends because you're thinking so low of yourself. You think nobody cares about me. Nobody would want to know what my interests are. Nobody would value uh, what I value. I don't want to take that risk of being rejected again. Maybe you've been rejected in the past and friendship's been really painful for you. All right. Recognizing the validity of those um, concerns, again, come back to the question, what does the gospel tell you to think about yourself? 
What's the measure of faith that the gospel says? This is how you should think about yourself. The measure of faith goes like this. Jesus is your friend. Greater love is no one than this, than he laid out his life for his friends, and you are my friends. And if Jesus is, you know, whatever you think about him, don't lose sight of the fact that he is your friend. He's your best friend. And he knows all about you, and he's walked with you through all of that, and he loves you. He's not going to reject you. He knows your stuff, and he's going to call you on your, you know, whatever it is that you're blind to and you're not owning Uh, He's going to hold you accountable to that, and he's going to lift you up for the places where you feel inferior and and inconsequential, and he is going to bless you. And when you receive that love and that friendship from him, guess what? To the degree that you're living in light of that friendship from Jesus and living in light of the gospel and the love that you receive from him, you have all kinds of resources to pour into others, to pursue others in friendship. Maybe you've been sitting back waiting to be pursued. I get it. It's nice to be pursued. And maybe you've been pursuing other people and you're just tired and you're kind of like, well, forget it, I'm done. No, you're not. You can't be done and be a faithful Christian because God's calling us to receive the friendship of Jesus and then to be a conduit, an agent of the friendship of Jesus to those around us. Let's pray. Father, we, we need help. Um, we need help to live this kind of life where we think rightly about ourselves and we, we're involved and we're vested and we're being good stewards of the gifts you've given us and the community that you've placed us in. And we need help to, to give ourselves as friends Husbands and wives need help giving their friendship to one another and friends need help giving their friendship to one another. Roommates need help giving friendship to one another. We need help pursuing others in friendship and opening ourselves up and taking risks. And we pray that this gospel, this beautiful gospel that simultaneously shows us our our sin and also shows us our, our worth would keep us from pride and keep us from, from the kind of um, a view of ourselves that thinks we don't have anything to offer. Lord, would you help us to go forth in love? Would you help us to love our neighbor? Would you help us to love you as we love ourselves? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.